Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. This time, each carried a torch, and each was burned by it. The heel, the hero worshiper, and the hard-bitten blonde. And all because of a woman already two days dead. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. In just a moment, tonight's story. But first, a message from the Ford dealers of America. Tonight, more than 110,000 enthusiastic motorists own new 1950 Fords. Here's what Donald L. Gibson, a pilot from Kansas City, says about his 50 Ford. As a pilot, I'm naturally interested in engines, and that's why I bought a 50 Ford. That V8 really ticks along. And ticks is just the right word, because it's as smooth and quiet as the Swiss movement and a good watch. And it's not just the Ford engine that's fine. The ride is just like flying in smooth air, and the car handles like a dream. Anyone who's thinking of buying a new car should certainly take a check ride in the 50 Ford. We Ford dealers are swamped with comments like that. But don't take anyone's word for this new 50 Ford. Prove it for yourself. Look up your nearest Ford dealer in the classified phone directory. Or perhaps you know him personally. He'll arrange a test drive in the 50 Ford. Test drive it for comfort, for power, for safety, and for the quietness, which is its mark of quality. Yes, before you buy any car at any price, Test drive the 50 Ford at your Ford dealers tomorrow. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Torch Carriers. The eight hours that had just slipped away had been a noisy assortment of big people with little troubles I hadn't wanted to help. And little people with big troubles I hadn't been able to help. So by the time it was all over and I was heading for home, a cozy, quiet cocktail lounge at the Wilshire Gardens Hotel seemed like a good idea. When I was there, up at the bar, with one down and one to go, the strain that had been with me all day began to ease up. But even as I relaxed, the tension between the couple sitting at my left became more and more apparent. I looked down the bar. The girl was young, pretty, and obviously afraid of the little man with her. Who had only asthma where a voice should have been. Now, have I made myself clear? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, look, sister, Larry Sower doesn't go for people snooping after him now. And neither do I. It gives me work to do that sometimes rough on a party. Brave boy. All right, little man, you've had your busy day. Hey, take your hands off. As soon as you relax. Okay, okay, get your mitts off. Now, now, gentlemen, please, no fighting. I can lose my license for it. Now, you, you leave at once. Wait a minute, Baldy. You heard him, Buster. Okay. I said what I come to say anyhow. Walter, Walter, stop playing. You all right, miss? Yes, thank you. Are you sure? Would you like another drink? No, no, thank you. I think I'll go back to my villa. Oh, you're staying here at the Wilshire Garden? Yes, Villa 12, it's just around the corner. Maybe I better see you as far as the door. Little pal of yours might still be around. Well, thank you. It's all right, come on. This is really very nice of you, Mr. Marlowe, Philip Marlowe. What about you? What? Oh, Claire Osborne. Well, now look, Claire, I'm not trying to pry into your business, but in a way, people like Larry Salter are my business. Larry Salter? How did you know about him? Your little pal in the bar wasn't whispering. 
Oh, I... I'm a private detective, Claire, and I see a lot of people get in over their heads. Hate to see it happen to you. You know, these people play rough, usually for keeps. Maybe you better tell me about it, huh? Well, this is my place. Oh. Mr. Marlowe, I'll be frank with you. A month ago, I got into a jam. It was an investment I'd made, some stock, a sure thing I was told. Yeah, they usually are. Anyhow, the certificates weren't quite gilt-edged, and they took a dive, a deep one. And to protect myself, I needed more money, so I I took a bracelet. I had a diamond one and got a loan on it. From Larry Salter? Yes, from Salter. A friend, a person I thought was a friend, recommended him to me. So, so you cashed your bracelet, covered your investment, got your money back, and now you want the bracelet again, correct? Yes, but Salter isn't around. He's hiding. How do you know? Well, I went to the club he runs up on the strip. I overheard it there. Oh. Two men spoke of him as being on a, an extended vacation for his health. But, of course, I didn't believe that, so I went around the back, found the door open, and got into Salter's private office. Maybe that in itself is a wonderful way to get into trouble deep. Yes, I know, but I just had to find out where Salter could be located so I could pay him and get my bracelet back. Huh. Here, look. This paper. Mm-hmm. It was folded under Salter's memo pad. On one side it says, Madge, Gladstone 274. The last number's missing, torn off. And on the back, meet at 1010. Uh, 10. Can this help us any? Well, it might. But first, Claire, a couple of questions that might help even more. Who was that ersatz little Caesar who slapped you in there? One of the men I overheard talking at Salter's club. He must have seen me and then followed me here. That figures. Now look, honey. You're scrambling awful hard for a thousand-buck bracelet. What's the rest of it? The rest of it? Well, you're out of your... Honey. Oh, what's you? That's better. I might just as well tell you. The bracelet isn't mine, Mr. Marlowe. It belongs to my aunt. I live with her in San Diego. Oh, you borrowed it while she was away, maybe, huh? Yes. Oh, please, I've learned my lesson. I only want to get that bracelet back now, Mr. Marlowe. Please, please, will you help me? I'll pay you anything. Never mind that now. Oh, please. I, I must know where Larry Salter is. Okay, Claire. We'll try to find out, but I want condition, huh? Which is what? That you go inside, lock all doors and windows, sit next to the phone, and until you hear from me again, do absolutely nothing on your own. Agreed? Oh, yes. Agreed, Mr. Marlowe. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe it was because the sweet young kid had the kind of voice you could still hear long after she was gone. You know, one of those lingering sounds like... Like the echo of a train whistle hanging on crisp early morning air. But when I was at a payphone, I stopped wondering and started dialing numbers prefix Gladstone and followed by 274 and then in order 123 and so on until after no answer once, wisecrackers twice and a babysitter who thought I was a masher from her high school... I finally scored at number five. The answer took me to a dame named Madge Gilbert at a place called the Beekman Plaza. It wasn't the kind of place you'd go for mother, and Madge Gilbert wasn't the kind of girl mother would put up with. However, she must have been nice to look at once. And from the smile, pleasant to know. Okay, Mr. Busy Guy, now that we're together, what is it? Well, for one thing, the name's Kirby, and you can drop the fancy handle. Uh Uh-huh. And for another thing, Kirby? I want to find Larry Salter, but quick. Why? Got a proposition for him. He won't be interested. Sit down. Uh, how can you tell? You don't know what it is. No, but I do know what at the moment Larry is. Yeah? And in three letters, my friend, the word is sad. He lost his lady love. Drink? No, thanks. What do you mean, his lady love? I heard that you and Never Larry... Never mind were... what you heard. 
Uh -huh. All that used to be. The pre-Janice trial period. Uh, the sad comes from Janice finding a better deal, maybe, huh? No. She was killed. Automobile accident. Night before last. Sold her with her? No, again. She was alone and drunk. Well, that's probably the way Larry is right now. A blind fool. Fill it up, will you? Sure. Look, baby, believe me, it won't put out the torch you're carrying. Shut up. Sorry I broke the whole thing up. Now, what was that proposition you mentioned? For Larry exclusively. Where is he? The foundry on Cushing. Where? The foundry in East Los Angeles. Hey, wait a minute, Kirby. You seem kind of lost for a friend of Larry's. Well, I'm just fuzzy on locations, that's all. How about numbers? The address down there, what is it? Come on, fast. 1010. Unless it's been changed recently. It hasn't. Okay, busy guy, you're still all right. Thanks. And if you play it real close, I think you'll be too. See you, Madge. Cushing Avenue in East Los Angeles is industrial, literally wrong side of the tracks and about as non-Hollywood as an honest day's work. And all the way there, I kept blessing the dumb luck that had made me answer 1010 for the address before I'd even had time to think. When I pulled up and parked away from the place, I hoped that luck would continue. Because ahead was the foundry, or what remained of it, and in no sense did it look like friendly territory. I found a metal staircase climbing from what had once been a loading ramp up to the yard foreman's office where a single staring, unshielded light inside said that somebody was home. And when I'd quietly gone up those stairs, I saw through a glass door who that somebody was. Larry Salter, alone next to a telephone and pitching darts at a smiling face on a calendar across the wall that read January 1928. And I knocked with the barrel of my 38 on the dirty glass door. Told me to come in without okay. looking up. Make yourself at home, neighbor. Be with you in a minute. Ah. <clears throat> Aha! <laughs> I did it. Her front tooth have been trying for that all night. So glad you made it. Now it won't be on your mind while we talk. About what? Bracelets. Bracelets? Uh, neighbor, this is an iron foundry. What you want is a jewelry shop. Let's save each other a lot of time and level, huh? I'm a private detective named Marlowe Salter, and at the moment working for Claire Osborne, who now has the price of a bracelet. Wants it back in a hurry. Do we do business? No, we don't. And it's not because I don't like your neighbor. But? But because, one, I never heard of any Claire Osborne. And two, bracelets are stuff for second-story men, which I am not. And three, you ought to get yourself a pair of sneakers, stupid. <laughs> You've been followed all the way through the yard, up the stairs, and into this room. An old gag, Sully. No, no gag. So while you still can, you better put that gun away, because my boy Cover takes a strange delight in messing people up real bad. You're bracketed, chum. You better drop it fast. Yep. That's better. Now, Marlo, without any double talk about babes and bracelets, let's have it. You're one of Freeman's best boys, aren't you? You think I had something to do with him getting knocked off in that ditch? You're here to square things away. That's it, isn't it? No, it is. Let me get your hands off me. Okay. I won't touch you again. But that's more than I can say for Cobra. Yeah. Lots more. <laughs> 
toss-up, whether Cobra's gun on the side of my head or the side of my head on the floor had done the damage. But either way, it didn't seem to matter. Because I couldn't make it back any further than Larry Salter's voice. It sounded like it was coming from the bottom of the well. Even though I could see him talking into the telephone. Okay, my place later. It's 8100 North Lucerne in Hollywood. But then, I couldn't even see that anymore. I'm over in East Los Angeles. Oh, Mr. Marlowe, did you find him? Do you know where Larry Salter is? Yeah, I think so. 8100 North Lucerne. It's up in Hollywood near you. Now, listen, Claire, about the bracelet. There is no bracelet. What? There was no odd. No trouble on the stock market and no loan made. Why do you want to know where Salter is? What do you want from him? His life. Goodbye, Mr. Marlowe. Wait a minute, Claire. Claire, listen to me. I... Oh... wouldn't try it, Sam. Hey, Cova, listen, Shut I... Shut up. You don't have to go no place until Larry Salter comes back and says so. Now relax, chum. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, a brief message from the Ford Dealers of America. Over 100,000 motorists are experiencing the engineering leadership built into the 50 Ford. As owners, they already know that it's the one fine car in the low-priced field, and it's personal experience that counts in buying a car. That's why the Ford dealers of America are issuing this special invitation to test drive this new 50 Ford for yourself. In the classified phone directory, you'll find the name of your nearest Ford dealer. Perhaps you know him personally. He'll be delighted to arrange a test drive tomorrow. So get behind the wheel and test drive it for the comfort of its midship ride and its unmatched roominess. Test drive it for the power and quietness of the only V8 in the low-priced field, the kind of engine found in America's costliest cars, yet priced lower than ten different six-cylinder cars. Test drive it for the safety of its own king-size brakes, largest in the low-priced field. Before you buy any car at any price, you'll find it to your advantage to test drive the 50 Ford at your Ford dealers tomorrow. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Torch Carriers. I turned to the poker-faced cobra in the 45, both staring at me from across six dusty feet of concrete floor that made the ancient East L.A. foundry seem colder and even more lonely. You don't stay put so good, do you, sweetheart? You're kind of heavy-handed with that gun, aren't you, Cobra? You want to try again, sweetheart? I'll pass. Standing here staring at each other is apt to get dull, don't you think? That's entirely up to you, sweetheart. You bleed pretty. You'd like that, wouldn't you, kid? 
Look, just so I don't get plugged by mistake. You better let me sit down before I fall down, huh? Help yourself. Over there on that box, so we keep me between you and the door. That's right. You're a good boy. You got no idea. Hey, come on. How long do we play like this? I'll tell you better when Orville the Squeak gets back. What's Orville the Squeak? He runs errands for Larry, like finding out what's phony about a certain young babe and her bracelets that don't exist. So that's where the bird with the whiskey soprano fits. That's the way the punk operates, huh? Well, that way, Covo, we'll both die of old age before... Well, well, you hear that? Somebody moved downstairs. Maybe this is visitor's night in the old foundry. <laughs> Don't get your hopes up, sweetheart. Those live here. They're rats. They eat small dogs. And one thing more, Marlowe. <laughs> What's that for, punk? Dropping your hands out of your lap where I couldn't see them. Don't try it again. Now put it on your bill. You know, Cover, you're holding me here on Larry Salter's orders, and yet I'm the only one who knows what schedule I happened to him tonight. Maybe you better tell me. Sure, sure. Only first I want to know something. What about the late Mr. Freeman Best? Freeman was scum. Low, stinking scum. Nobody misses him. I mean nobody. And Larry didn't kill him. That's out. But he was connected, wasn't he? And there was a girl named Janice Trow. How does she figure? Uh, you better let that one set, sweetheart, for your own sake. Now let's have your end and fast. What's supposed to happen... Did you hear it? Yeah, what? Don't tell me a tough boy like you gets jumpy. Skip it. All right, give. Come on, wise boy jabber. Look, Culver, won't do you any good. Anyway, I'm the only one who... Shut can... up. There was something. Maybe your rats are big enough to wear shoes. Huh? Shut up, I said. And sit right there or I'll blow you in two, and I mean it. Orvo? Orvo? Hey, Squeak. Is that you? Who's out there? Answer me! As Cove ridged out of the room, I felt along the side of the box I'd been sitting on for a jagged chunk of metal slag I'd spotted earlier. It was about the size of a baseball and heavy. I picked it up and moved across to the opposite wall near the door. You! Get out of here! The boss is through with you! Now beat it! I stepped out and saw Cove standing at the head of the stairs his back to me. I threw the lump of iron slag with everything I had. <clears throat> Caught him like a hammer between the shoulder blades. His head flew back, his fingers clawed at the air, and he pitched face first down the stairs. I caught a glimpse of a woman ducking out of sight behind the foundry furnace. It was Madge Gilbert. You killed him, didn't you? Cobra's dead? I don't know, and I don't care. What are you doing in this boarded-up rat trap? There's nobody else here. Just us and Cobra. Creepy number they call over the squeakers do any minute. That nasty little loss. Gives me the willy. You made your bed, baby, but let's not get lost. What are you after in here? Well, I've been thinking plenty about that torch you're talking about. I decided if you carry the same old one long enough, you're bound to get burned. Finally felt the heat, huh? Yeah, plenty. So I came here looking for you, or Larry. Couldn't make up your mind. Certainly. I wanted to tell Larry I was through with him. He'd have beat you to it, but you found me, so... Okay. But if Larry or the squeak come back after what I'm going to tell you, you got to help me get out of here. Larry'd kill me. Okay, kid, let's have it. Well, you wanted to know about Janice Trowell. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you. She was beautiful. I'd be the first to admit it. A brunette like every woman wishes she was. And Larry fell for her. She took him away from me just like I'd been dead ten years. 
Only she was rotten. Never once a clean thought in her twisted, dirty old brain. So says the jealous lover. Jealous? Sure, I was jealous at first. And just hurt and disgusted. She was double-crossing Larry every time he turned around, but there was nothing I could do. I tried to tell him... So he... far, it's strictly stock, Madge. Yeah. All but this. One time, I made it stick. She borrowed Larry's car to take that slimy Freeman best out for a ride in it. With extra laughs because it was Larry's car, mind you. And and Freeman best, in case you haven't heard. I've was... heard. Well... I got a lead that they were going to wind up at the Bridge Cafe. I made Larry take me out there to prove what I'd been telling him about Janice was true. You proved it? Sure. We waited for him at the bridge. They showed up all right, doing 90. She couldn't make the curve, and they hit the bridge railing. They killed them both. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're stretching, baby. Freeman Best Body was found 30 miles south. Sure, sure it was, because Larry couldn't bear the idea of Janice Trow being found with Freeman Best. He tried to protect her and keep everybody from finding out what a tramp she really was. He pulled Freeman's body out of the wreck and hauled it clear down to Long Beach and dumped it. I watched him do it. And all this business is just to keep that secret about Janice Trow, huh? Sure. Gee, can you imagine a love like that going to waste? <laughs> Why, even with her dead, even now, he won't as much as speak to me. I'm not so bad. I've tried and I've waited... But he won't drop it. So it's all yours, Kirby, and take it. I hope you put it right where it hurts him the most. No dice, baby. Kirby was a stall. I'm Marlowe, private detective. What? Gee, how cheap did I sell out, anyway? That depends. The only axe I'm grinding is for a girl named Claire Osborne. Ever hear of her? No. That's funny. For some reason, she hates Salter even more than you. Listen, it's horrible. You stay where you are. I'm scared of him, Mom. I'll pull his fangs. Just don't get absent-minded about which side you're on. Hello, Orville. Where's Larry? I, I don't know. I've been waiting for him. Where's cover, then? I got something important. Cover? Oh, why, well, he, he went out for a few minutes. Yeah? I don't like this, sister. You in here all by yourself. Something's wrong. What is it? Come on, what's the matter? Marlowe! Hold it, Orville. What? You. Uh, why the gun? Yes. What do you know about Claire Osborne? I don't think I know the party. Sure you do. A cute little brunette named Claire oh. Osborne. I want the straight dope on her, and I want it now, not later. Go over. Hey, go Answer over. my questions, you creep. You won't get anything out of me. Larry will take care of both. Hey. You jerk. Maybe there's something on it'll give me an answer without talking back. Look, he always wrote things down in a little notebook. It's inside his jacket. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Here it is. Let's see. Oh, sure, sure, this is it. Claire Osborne arrived from San Diego last night by plane. Registered at Wilshire Gardens as Claire Osborne, but according to driver's license, her real name is... For Pete's sake, no wonder. I'll see you, kid. It took me 20 minutes to get from East L.A. over to Lucerne and another five to find the bleak white bungalow that belonged to Larry Salter. Its front windows were dark when I drove past it, parked on a side street, and walked back. But in the rear, one window showed a light. The screen door was open, so I eased myself into the service porch where I could see Salter sitting at a kitchen table. A look on his face of hurt defiance like a small boy accused of something he hadn't done. 
I couldn't see who was facing him, but there was no mistaking the voice. I love my sister. It was Claire. All my life, Dennis was everything to me. And now she's dead and you killed her. That's true, isn't it? I've already told you once, kid, you're making a mistake. I know I'm not. You're going to pay for my sister's death. No court will ever call it murder, but that's what it was. You did it just as surely as if you'd strangled her with your own hands. And now I'm going to get even for Janice. Claire, hey, what but, Marlo, you crazy fool, why did you come here? Give me that gun, Claire. I know, you stay out of this. You can't stop me. Nobody can. Even if you shoot me, Marlo, I'll kill him Now, first. listen to me. Before you start pulling that trigger, you better know all the facts. Everything Salter here has done since your sister's death has been to shield and protect what little she herself left of a good reputation. She turned bad, Claire. She... You're lying. No, no. What reason have I got to lie? I'm telling you this because it's true and I can prove it. I don't believe you. You're trying to trick me. It was your big sister who tricked you years ago. She was no good. See, that double-crossing dirty cheater wouldn't shoot square for five minutes. Stop it, Now there's more. The night she died, she was two-timing Larry. But even in spite of that, he risked his neck to move the body of the other guy just so... so she wouldn't be found with the kind of cheap trash she'd been running around with. And do you know why? Because Larry Salter there loved your sister, loved her every bit as much as you did. Loved her? Yeah. I know. No, this, this can't be true. Yes, it's true, kid. All of it. I loved her all right. It's just too bad that Janice went like she did. Oh, Marlo. Okay, baby, the hard part's over. Come on, come on, give me the gun. You don't want to shoot anybody. Not now. Better now, Claire? Yes, I hope you're all right when I get used to a few new ideas. Yeah. What's going to happen to me now? Well, that's pretty much up to you. How do you mean? The world spins like mad, honey. You have to keep up or get lost. Like I was tonight. Mm -hmm. I was lost, Marlo, terribly. Everything I had any faith in was, was gone. Yeah, I know. That's because you had blind faith, Claire. You know, that's okay for kids, but you're a big girl now. Oh, yes, I, I get it. From now on, it's me, on my own two feet, and my eyes wide open. <laughs> well, take it easy, baby. It's uh, fun to close them once in a while. After I dropped Claire off at her hotel, I... I remember the drink I'd started out to get and left half-finished on the bar. But it was too late now to stop anywhere, so... I drove home and poured myself a nightcap in my own apartment. I carried it over to the window and... looked out across the city at the endless miles of winking lights. Each one a torch. Everybody carries a torch for something. Some for a love they can never have. An ideal that's out of reach and some just... just for memory. Funny thing. So many dark corners get their only light on the torch that somebody carries.
Philip Marlowe will be back in just a moment. But first, here's a message from the Ford dealers of America. More than 110,000 delighted motorists were already driving the new 50 Ford. Here's what Jack Farrell, hotel manager, says. I did a lot of shopping around and chose Ford for styling. And I'm certainly glad because I found there's plenty of car beneath its beautiful body. There's plenty of power under the hood, too. And it's as comfortable as a high-priced car. I could go on for hours about the quietness, the economy, and the comfort of my car, but it all adds up to this. The 50 Ford's a mighty fine car to own. We Ford dealers are not surprised that new owners rave about their 50 Ford's. We've studied this new Ford from stem to stern. We know every detail of its 50 ways new for 50. But until you get behind the wheel, you won't be able to believe how good it is. That's the reason we want you to test drive the 50 Ford. The classified phone directory will give you the name of the nearest Ford dealer. Or perhaps you know him personally. Why don't you phone him tomorrow? Before you buy any car at any price, you owe it to yourself to test drive the 50 Ford. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time, everything that happened from the orange-haired man with a map past the oath for the pitchfork to the body at the covered bridge was wrong. Dead wrong. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character... Star Gerald Moore are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Sammy Hill, John Daner, Vivi Janis, Harry Bartell, Wilms Herbert, and Edgar Barrier. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard O'Rant. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. It's almost the night before Christmas, and there's plenty stirring at our house. Gifts to deliver, cards to address, and we're far from broke even giving the best. Elgin American. The loveliest dresser set for swanky Aunt Carrie. That sensational lighter case for smooth Uncle Harry. And Mother's Elgin American simulated pearls. Gorgeous strands, earrings, and rope. She'll let me borrow them, I hope, I hope. Yes, our magnificent compact magic action lighter and cigarette cases just couldn't be righter than Elgin American makes them. And talk about values. Elgin American beats them all, looks like a million, for prices so small. And there's also American Beauty to save you even more. It's Elgin American's companion line, the extra thrifty adore. So these last three days, do as millions have done. Buy the finest gift made by the only, the one... Elgin American. Good gracious, I've nothing for the Johnsons yet. Oh, gifts for girls at the office. Heavens, what can I get this late for Jim's boss? Keep calm, folks. It's not too late to buy the gifts that will make a big hit. Do you proud and look more expensive than they are. Elgin American gifts for men and women. Exquisite compact cigarette cases, dresser sets, luxurious simulated pearls, sensational lighter cases, magic action lighters. An almost endless choice of the most wanted gifts, all at real value prices. Gifts with the world's finest designing and craftsmanship. The prestige of the leading name in its field. The thrill of saying, 
It's an Elgin American. So make your last-minute shopping a big success. Tomorrow, buy the first-in-fashion, first-in-value gifts of them all. Elgin American gifts. The name Elgin American means the very finest quality designing, finish, and craftsmanship. The best value. In exquisite compacts, gorgeous simulated pearls, magnificent dresser sets, magic action lighters, wondrous lighter cases, distinguished cigarette cases, handsome military sets, fascinating musical humidors. Your favorite store has a complete assortment of the newest Elgin American styles right now. See them. And for your own proud use, for thrilling prestige gifts, always buy Elgin American. The Equitable Society presents This is Your FBI. This is Your FBI, an official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. To your FBI, you look for national security. And to the Equitable Society for financial security. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. Tonight, as a departure, we bring you the preview of a sensational motion picture, The House on 92nd Street, produced by 20th Century Fox, with the actual cooperation of the FBI. It reveals the most daring espionage plot of World War II. This dramatic screenplay stars William Ife, Lloyd Nolan, and Sidney Hasso, and we have them here in person for our preview. This is your FBI presents The House on 92nd Street. Back in 1939, the mechanized legions of Adolf Hitler were overrunning the face of Europe, crowding civilization into a dark corner. The ever-increasing number of Nazi bunds in this country, the growing network of German spies, clearly indicated that Hitler would not stop at the borders of Europe. And so the FBI, always on the alert to protect the safety of the nation, went to work. Every known suspect was watched, their every move recorded for the files. The FBI could not declare open war against the treacherous Germans in this country, but it could and did keep a 24-hour watch on them so that when the time came, those Nazis could do nothing to help Hitler make good his threat of yesterday Germany, today Europe, tomorrow the world. As our story opens on an afternoon in the spring of 1939, William Dietrich, a good-looking husky young man, is standing near a pole vaulting pit on a college athletic field. He's in track uniform, and as he flexes his muscles before making his first jump, he is approached by two men. Pardon me. Are you William Dietrich? That's right. We would like to talk to you. What about? My name is uh, William Gross. How do you do? And uh, this is August Kaufman. 
How do you do? Hello, Mr. Clawman. Dietrich, we came here to talk to you about, well, joining our society. What society is that? The German-American society. Oh? You're a good German. Your parents came from Stuttgart. You should join us. Well, I... Uh, Dietrich, you're going to graduate in June? Uh, yes, at least I think so. Well, would you like to take a trip back to Germany after you graduate? No, I couldn't afford it. I have to go to work when I leave here. Oh, uh, the trip would cost you nothing. Uh, you'd be, you would be paid, uh, in fact. Paid? Oh, what would I have to do? Oh, go to school in Germany for three months. What kind of school? A place where you will learn how to help the fatherland. Oh. And when you're finished there, you come back here to work for Germany. <laughs> Dietrich was a first-generation American, and like most first-generation Americans of German descent, he was a loyal citizen of this country, not a loyal Nazi. He asked the representatives of the German-American society to wait for his answer, because he had a plan. With that plan in mind, he telephoned the FBI in Washington. The next morning at FBI headquarters, William Dietrich was seated across the desk from Inspector George A. Briggs. Well, that's... Just about the whole story, Mr. Briggs. I see. I've had you checked since you called. You have? Yes. I find you can be trusted. And it's all set? I can really go? Oh, now, wait. Not so fast. Before you do anything, I have to tell you what you'd be up against. Well? If the Nazis should find out that you're working with us, they wouldn't think any more of killing you than of striking a match. And they only kill people they like with bullets. Yeah, I know that. And furthermore, the FBI doesn't command anyone to take his life in his hands. Well, that's why I called you, Mr. Briggs. I understand. When did your, uh, your friends, when did you tell them that you'd let them know? Wednesday night. Well, you've got almost a full week to make up your mind. After you give them an answer, call and let me know what that answer is. Mr. Briggs, I think I can save your phone call. I know what I'm going to tell them. Then let's go to work. After his graduation, William Dietrich left for Germany. Arriving at Hamburg, he went to the famous Nazi school in that city, the school for spies and saboteurs. When he had learned his lessons well, he was ready to return to the United States. He was given counterfeit identification papers and some genuine credentials with which to introduce himself to the Nazi contact in New York. While he was still on the high seas, en route back to New York from Lisbon, Inspector Briggs and a special agent named Walker were busy at the FBI headquarters in Washington. Here's a report you should see, Walker. Oh? What's it about? A man was hit by a cab in New York three days ago. Some papers were found on him that looked suspicious, so they sent them down to us. Mm -hmm. He was carrying a forged passport, but his fingerprints show that he was Captain Franz von Wirt. Well, he's one of their top men. He was. He died on the way to the hospital. I see. Anything come out of his papers? Yes. We sent one of the letters he was carrying to the laboratory. They found some numbers written between the lines in disappearing ink. Cryptanalysis just broke it down. And? It said, 
Concentrate on process 97. Well, that means nothing to me. It didn't to me either. So I called a meeting this morning of Army and Navy Intelligence. I read them the message. Any response? Oh, plenty. Process 97 is our new secret weapon. Oh. Nobody was even supposed to know that we were working on it. Well, what's our move? First, we've got to find out how much the Nazis know about it. And second, how they found out. Well, young Dietrich ought to be able to help us out on that one. Maybe, yes. His German credentials came in on Clipper this morning. I have them here. Oh, read them to me, will you? Now, they're in German and translated. They say, William Dietrich is specifically authorized to receive all reports for transmission direct. And that's the first paragraph. Uh-huh. Leave that one as it is. Right. Paragraph two says you're instructed to look to him for all payments. Well, that's fine. That means that they've got to come to him. Leave that one alone, too. Okay. The last paragraph says it is forbidden for him to have any contact with agents known to you. Mm, I don't like that. Now, let's see now. Uh, have it changed to read he is authorized to contact all agents known to you. Right. And after that, pack your bags. We're going to New York. A few days later, a Portuguese freighter came into New York Harbor. William Dietrich, one of the passengers, brought his luggage down under the pier, where it was checked by a customs inspector. The customs man was FBI Inspector George A. Briggs. As Briggs went through the bags, he quietly slipped Dietrich the new credentials. The forged credentials which would give Nazi spy and counter-espionage agent William Dietrich more freedom. When he left the pier, Dietrich took a cab to the house on 92nd Street. There he rang the bell and was admitted into the ground floor dress shop, a dress shop run by Elsa Gebhardt. You're Elsa Gebhardt? That's right. Well, they didn't tell me you were so pretty. Uh, who are they? Oh, pardon me, I'm sorry. My name is Bill Dietrich. Oh, I've been expecting you. Good. Here's a message for you from Colonel Strassen in Hamburg. Who's that, Elsa? This is William Dietrich. Ah. Is he the new one? Yes, Max. He brought this message from Felix. He is William Dietrich. He's authorized to receive all reports for transition direct. He's authorized to pay our fee. He's, author He's authorized to contact all agents known to me. That's what Colonel Strassen said. But I don't understand. He never sent anybody else with orders like that. I'm going to check these credentials. Oh. I'll write to a friend of mine in Argentine. He'll get a message through to Hamburg. Okay, but meanwhile, I've got to go to work. What do you want? Enough parts to build a radio transmitter. Here's a list of what I need. Why don't you buy them yourself? I can't afford to be caught buying radio parts. He's right, Max. Here's the list. Get them. Okay. That will be all for now, Mr. Dietrich. Very well. Uh, don't go out through the front door. How then? Use this back door. And then walk out through the alley into 93rd Street. Okay. Goodbye, Miss Gebhardt. Goodbye. Max. Yeah? Follow him. Oh. 
William Dietrich got his radio parts and set up a transmitter in a secluded house on Long Island. He never transmitted to Hamburg, though. Every message he sent was picked up by a nearby receiver, a receiver operated by the FBI. After all harmful portions of the message had been removed, the FBI then shortwaved the rest in proper code to Germany. One day at this radio shack, Dietrich received an urgent summons from Elsa Gebhardt. She had to see him immediately. An hour later, he was in the house on 92nd Street. Dietrich. Yeah? I have something that must be sent as quickly as possible. Where is it? Here, in this envelope. Okay. If we hadn't done anything else in all the years we've been working, this information would make the whole thing worthwhile. But these are almost all numbers. They, they don't make sense. They'll make enough sense in Hamburg. I must have them back here by tomorrow night. Well, that's a tough assignment. Why? What makes it so tough? Well, I have to put all this in the code before I send it. That takes time. These are my orders. Well, why can't I... I just burn them when I'm finished. Because sometimes radio messages are garbled. When you're finished, I'll mail them to our drop in Argentine. It must get through. <laughs> Come in? Yes, come ahead, Walker. Anything on those papers Dietrich sent in? Yes. I spoke to Dr. Appleton. He's head of the laboratory. Mm -hmm. Those papers are definitely on process 97. What's more, he said the experiments took place just two days ago. What do we do now? Dr. Appleton is going to work on the papers. He says if you change one number, it can throw the Germans off for a month. Hmm. You know, I don't get this whole setup. I thought nobody working on the process was allowed to leave the plant. Nobody but a few of the scientists. They can leave a couple of nights a week. But they're thoroughly searched before they go. Mm. Look, uh, can you tell me what Process 97 is? Well, I'll give it to you the way it was given to me. From what our scientists already know about its properties, it would devastate any city it was used against. Sounds like a death ray. I made the same guess. Is it right? No. Process 97 is an atomic bomb. momentarily close the Equitable Society's presentation of the Federal Bureau of Investigation file on The House on 92nd Street. We will return to this case in just a moment. You know the old saying, there's safety in numbers. Well, that's exactly the kind of safety enjoyed by members of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Each member of this society has three and a quarter million fellow members. From the premium dollars of this vast number of men and women has been built a gigantic protective fund. In managing this fund, the Equitable Society never forgets the principle of safety in numbers. So equitable dollars are put to work in a large number of different ways. In fact, it's difficult to mention a basic American industry in which equitable dollars do not play an important part. They are invested in farming and shipbuilding, in mining and railroading, in public utilities and steel mills, and hundreds of other worthwhile enterprises. Remember, complex as all these activities may be, the management of the Equitable Society has two simple objectives. First, to make it easy for those who become Equitable members 
to gain security for themselves and their families. Second, to make sure that equitable funds are a force for good, always used to promote the industrial and financial health of this country. Thus, by serving its members, the Equitable Society serves America. And now, back to the FBI file on The House on 92nd Street, starring William Ith, Lloyd Nolan, and Sidney Hasso. <laughs> December 11, 1941, Adolf Hitler declared that a state of war now existed between the United States and Germany. The FBI immediately arrested most of the known enemy agents. But Elsa Gebhardt and Max Koburg were allowed to continue their work because the FBI had to know. The very fate of the war we were fighting depended upon locating the leak through which Nazi Germany was getting the benefits of our experiments on the atomic bomb. Inspector Briggs in the FBI office in New York was trying to locate that leak. Briggs speaking. Inspector, this is Simmons. Yes? One of the scientists working on Process 97 is named Charles Alton Roper. That's right. Well, he went out last night for a walk, and he went into town. Here in Manhattan? Yes, to Broadway and 123rd Street. He visited a girl named Louise Vaja. Who was Louise Vaja? He used to be a courier for the Nazis. Shall I pick up Roper? This looks like the goods. No, don't pick up Roper but arrest Louise Vaja. Miss Vaja, we've just been wasting our time. But I've been telling you the truth. Listen, you once worked as a hairdresser on the North German Lloyd Liner Europa, correct? Yes. You used to bring over letters and mail them when you got ashore. Well, I never knew what was in they them. They were letters of instructions to German agents in this country. And you were working as a courier for the German Secret Service. No. We also know that you became an American citizen, oh. and that, Miss Vaja, makes you a traitor. Well, I have done nothing since the war began. I swear You it. have a friend who's a scientist. He's working for the government now. What's his oh. name? I have no friend. He was at your home last night. His name is Charles Ogden Roper. <laughs> Now, let's have your story. Briggs speaking. This is Bill Dietrich. Oh, hello, Bill. Something new has been added, Mr. Briggs. What do you mean? I got a message from Hamburg to give to Elsa Gebhardt. What is it? about a man I never heard of before. The message says, remove the memory expert at the completion of his mission. Memory expert? Sorry? If that means what I think it does, Bill, this is the break we've been waiting for. <laughs> Inspector Briggs was almost certain that Charles Ogden Roper was the memory expert. But he had to be sure. He checked Roper's birthplace, his college, his friends. Learning that years before he'd been in show business, he contacted many theatrical booking agents. In the office of one agent, a picture of Roper was found. A picture captioned, Charles Roper, memory wizard. That was the name of the act. And that was all Inspector Briggs needed. That afternoon at Dr. Appleton's laboratory. Dr. Appleton, why have I been brought here? 
This gentleman is from the FBI, Mr. Roper. The FBI? Mr. Roper, see if you recognize these photostats. Why? Why, they're photostats of the formula we worked on last week. I understand that you're one of the scientists privileged to leave the plant. A few evenings each week, yes, sir. A week ago tonight, you went out, didn't you? A week ago tonight? Yes. Last Friday night? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. I did go out. I visited a friend's house. What for? To play chess. What's your friend's name? I don't remember. Oh, come now. The great memory experts, Charles Ogden Roper. You can't remember your friend's name? It's Louise. Louise Vaja. How long have you known him? Three years. A week ago, Mr. Roper, $5,000 was paid into your bank account. Why? I... I sold some securities. Dr. Appleton, why does he ask me all these questions? Uh, This gentleman thinks you memorized parts of the formula before you left here. That's not true. And when you got to your friend's house, you set them down? No. We know all about you, Roper. We've traced you back to the day you were born. We even know the approximate date that you're scheduled to die. Die? Listen to this. It's an intercepted message direct from Germany. It says, remove the memory expert at the completion of his mission. Oh. What do you want to know? When did you make your last delivery? This morning, on my way back to work. Where did you make it? At a bookshop. Which one? Come on now, Robo. Talk up. Talk fast. Lang's Bookshop, 59th Street. I put the material in a book, Spencer's First Principles. What did you give him? What was it, Roper? It was the latest data on the final experiments. After Roper's confession that he was in league with a Nazi spy ring, the FBI went to Lang's bookstore on East 59th Street. Mr. Lang did not know anyone named Roper. He had never heard of anyone named Louise Vodger. His shop contained no copy of a book called Spencer's First Principles. It was gone. Is that you, Max? Yeah. Did you get the book? Uh-huh. You want me to take it to Dietrich? No. Why not? I received a letter from Argentine this morning about Dietrich. His credentials were forged. What? He's on his way here. I expect him any minute. Then I go to work on him, eh? No. Why not? He must be made to talk. I can make him talk. You'd kill him. That would serve no purpose. I have a much better plan. What? This hypodermic needle contains scopolamine. It drugs part of the brain. Yeah? After three injections, he'll be answering questions. Ah. I'll allow you to put him in proper condition to receive the first injection. Thanks. See who it is. It's Dietrich. He's coming back to this room. Good. Let him in, Max. Hello. Come in, Dietrich. Oh, thanks. All right, Max. Now let's go to work. Talk, you swine. Talk. Stop it, Max. 
give the medicine a chance to work. You see? He's coming out of it. Now he should talk. Dietrich, what is your real name? What is your real name? He's lying. Wait. Dietrich, you didn't send our messages to Hamburg, did you? Did you? No, no. You see, Max, it's working. Where did you send them? Thirty miles. Boy, the Max. Dietrich, who did you send our messages to? Who were you working with? Answer me. Who were you? The house phone. Someone's in the shop. I'll take it. Yes? Miss Gephardt? Who is this? I'm an FBI agent. Your house is surrounded. What's the matter? It's the FBI. They have the house surrounded. What? Quick. Take all the papers. Throw them in, into the fireplace. What Which? about him? Do as I say. You've got to get out of here. Open up, Miss Gephardt. Open the door. Now, what do we do? Get your gun. Keep them out, Max. Keep them out, Max. You take care of those two, Simons. Right. Bill. Bill. How is he? Well, he's passed out. He's evidently drugged. Look, you'd better get a doctor, Walker. I'll stay here. Okay. When he comes to, I want to be around to tell him that Process 97 still belongs to us. Thanks to the courageous work of the FBI, Process 97 remained in the possession of this country. Ultimately, it, would, it was used as the atomic bomb. Before and during this war, the FBI was able to protect this secret. But someday an enemy may discover the formula of atomic power in his own laboratories. If he does and he decides to go to war, then World War III will be over in 15 minutes. The discovery of the atomic bomb places a tremendous responsibility on the people of the entire globe. It was true when the late Wendell Wilkie said, this is one world. Now in this atomic age, the countries of the earth must get along together because now it will be one world or none at all. the disposition of this case in just a moment. Tonight, will you join the Equitable Society in a salute to an industry which will play a key role in building the better world of tomorrow? A salute to the scientists and workers in America's chemical industry. The outstanding wartime achievements of this industry are too numerous to mention. So let's take only one, the atomic bomb. The chemical industry made a major contribution toward unleashing the enormous power of the atomic bomb. Right now, this industry enters into your daily life in a thousand different ways. Consider the food you eat. Its growth was aided by chemical fertilizers and insecticides. 
The clothes on your back, the shoes on your feet, the ink in your fountain pen, the paint on your walls. To all these and scores of other articles of everyday use, chemicals and chemical research make vital contributions. And it is to the chemical industry that thousands of other industries look for expert aid in developing the improved post-war products that will make life happier and easier for all of us. Members of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States will be proud to learn that their premium dollars have helped finance this great industry and that over the years, Equitable Society funds have been invested in many of the great chemical plants that did so much to help win the war and will do even more to win the peace. Just as Equitable Society dollars were fighting dollars in wartime, so at all times they are security dollars for you, your home, and your country. Elsa Gebhardt and her confederate Max Coburg, upon trial and conviction, joined their fellow Nazi agents in a federal penitentiary. The incidents in tonight's Equitable Society's broadcast are taken from the 20th Century Fox exciting drama, The House on 92nd Street soon to be seen in all the nation's motion picture theaters, starring William Ith, Lloyd Nolan, and Signe Hasso. This breathtaking story was adapted from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Programs in this series of particular interest to servicemen and women are broadcast overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Tonight, the music was under the direction of Leith Stevens. The radio adaptation was by Jerry Lewis, and your narrator was Reed Hadley. This is Your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is Dick Joy speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and inviting you to tune in again next week at the same time for This is Your FBI. This is the American Broadcasting Company.